The Guardian. The Guardian has partnered with audible.co.uk to offer listeners a free audiobook when you sign up for a one-month, no-commitment trial of the Audible service. Audible has over 50,000 audiobook titles available to download. Go to guardian.co.uk slash audible for further details. I'm John Plunkett, and coming up on this week's Media Talk, it's farewell to the Press Complaints Commission, but business as usual at the Leveson Inquiry. We catch up with the latest phone-hacking fallout. Plus, we look back at two weeks of the sun on Sunday. Has it been two whole weeks? And ask what it means for News International and its rivals. We find out why a Snickers a day can help you work, rest and tweet, especially if you're Rio Ferdinand. And finally, we talk telly with a brand new channel from Channel 4, much ado at Disney, including the possible return of the Muppets, and Vicky Frost's verdict on what's hot and what's even hotter on the box. This is Media Talk from The Guardian. I'm joined by Mr. Dan Sabber, The Guardian's Head of Media and Technology, and by Mark Sweeney, The Guardian's Media Business Correspondent. Welcome to you both. We begin this week at the end. The end, that is, for the Press Complaints Commission, which is to close its doors after 21 years. It will be replaced with a transitional body, which will take charge of press regulation until a new system is set up in the wake of the Leveson Inquiry, more of which, of course, later. Um, Dan, first off with you, why is the PCC's chairman, Lord Hunt, doing this now? Wouldn't it make more sense to wait until the end of Leveson? No, I think they've got to show they're getting on with it. They've got to show that they mean business about reform. uh, And they want to sort of lead the way before Leveson does something to them they don't like. I think the relationship between Leveson and and the press regulation is quite delicate because, after all, Leveson's ultimate weapon is to persuade government to legislate. And everyone's in favour of uh, self-regulation or or, uh, independent regulation, depending on what fashionable term you want to use. Uh, And the point is that it's really up to the press to sort of come up with a sensible regulatory structure. uh, And this is the beginnings of of doing that. And Lord Hunt is showing that he's a man of action, I guess. Um, any, any clue at all about how, what this interim body is going to look like? Who's going to run it? Uh? Well, Lord Hunt's given us quite a lot of clues. There's going to be a, a standards arm that needs to be set up that sort of actually does independent investigations and has a bit more teeth than the old PCC, which obviously failed so lamentably when it came to phone hacking, didn't really have the tools, uh, the powers or the tools to do any meaningful investigation of what happened to the news of the world. Uh, and it's going to, uh, this will take a little bit longer, but they're trying to proceed down this contractual model, which is where they'll get publishers to contract in for, I don't know, five years uh, uh, to the PCC and its codes and standards and all the rest of it, or I should say the new look PCC. And so the principle here is that if you're um, an errant publisher, that they've got a, a weapon to beat you with, a legal weapon to beat you with, because they can sort of say, well, you're not you know, meeting up to your contractual obligations and therefore they can take you to court and fine you and all those things. Uh, and this model seems to be uh, getting some interest from old Richard Desmond. So the suggestion is that he might sign up to this PCC Plus or post-PCC or whatever it is it's going to be called. They don't actually have a name for it uh, uh, when the time comes. And is there a chance this will actually be the long-term model? Uh, do you think, is there a possibility uh, of that? Let's... That's a good question. I think we will have to see if they can actually deliver on these reforms that they're talking about. Uh, we'll have to see if uh, Leveson and the inquiry finds them credible. I think there's a lot of debate also about how can we cut the cost of libel and privacy actions and can we set up some kind of libel and privacy tribunal or court of first instance, something like that. Leveson's going to have to get involved in that. That's the kind of thing that might need legislation. So th- that's clearly going to be part of the mix. We just don't quite know how. Mark, do you think is, is it a case of good night and, and good riddance for the PCC? Or, I mean, top of its gravestone will be its failure to deal with 
with phone hacking, but it, it did some good as well in those 21 years. It did, it did. But I think the idea that maybe if uh, Desmond comes on board, we've got a complete solution is, is maybe a bit wider the mark. I think there's a lot of thinking that needs to be done and a lot of convincing. I don't know, do we really think he'll come on board with something? Is there something, he's, he's very anti these sorts of things, isn't he? He likes Lord Hunt, I think, and I suspect... The well, their press statements indicate that they that they are doing so, and I think they're possibly a bit slightly we're being beaten up for being outside the organisation. Although we all know that Richard Desmond is no fan of Paul Dacre, I, I think he's ready. The mood music is he's certainly ready to join the club. Dan, we might not talk about the PCC again, or certainly we should mark its passing. Give us your give us your verdict. Well, the PCC certainly did did some good things in terms of mediation. Uh, so if you Member of the public really wanted to use it and wanted to ring up and complain about uh, complain about a news story and get a correction or some sort of simple redress. Then the PCC was pretty good at doing that and uh, and was pretty good at sort of dealing with newspapers and not all and and could be tough on its rulings and could and could at times come up with a ruling that a newspaper wouldn't like. Problem was it didn't have the power to fine. It didn't really have any sort of meaningful weaponry. Uh, it, it didn't really have the power to investigate. Newspapers weren't ultimately that scared of it, although nobody liked a, an adverse ruling from the PCC. It didn't really sort of damage business as usual. And and so the underlying point was that, you know, major abuses could sort of carry on unchecked, and not just phone hacking, but I think the whole, uh, uh, I don't know, predatory coverage, if you like, of the McCanns uh, uh, was allowed to sort of go on un- unchecked. I think there's sort of a number of issues around uh, very sort of aggressive reporting uh, when people are arrested, I don't know, in murder cases like Chris Jeffries, uh, he was obviously uh, innocent in the Joanna Yates case and yet, you know, was quite sort of unfairly treated in the public prints uh, not that long ago. And I mean, there are plenty of other examples one can go on. And I think those things seem to happen again and again and again, that these sort of big media storms would engulf ordinary members of the public and, and celebrities and people would find it really hard to, to feel they were being treated fairly by the press or accurately, accurately or responsibly. And I think the PCC really just never could get to grips with that. Um, one of the ideas that's been raised is maybe something that takes some of the the way that the ASA is run. But in what you're saying, Dan, I'm not so sure that something like that would work because you tend to find that it rules so long after an event that you've kind of got away with it. If you look at what some of the advertisers have done in the past, they've they've got away with sort of murder, and six months later you're reading about a ruling. So I mean, I can see how you might want to take things from other bodies, or you know, have a look at, at how an Ofcom might run or how an ASA might run. But I mean, you're going to have to find some a lot more teeth than maybe you might see in some of these models. Yeah, and I think speed is a speed is a really big issue because Ofcom takes forever to reach adjudications. Obviously, mm. statutory body much more legalistic. The PCC, the old model was relatively quick. I mean, a few weeks rather than a few months. I think in the case of Ofcom, mainly because the broadcasters face up to Ofcom with lawyers, uh, uh, and the, the PCC process is a bit more informal. But look, I think we're all there's full on agreement that that the PCC is you know served its time and we need a sort of tougher body so I think this is just the reality of where we're heading to. Well we move on to Leveson now and Dan we mentioned last week that Sue Akers the Met Police's Deputy Assistant Commissioner she was she was treading a fine line updating the inquiry on the uh, on the police investigations that are ongoing particularly she referred to um, so-called network of corruption at the Sun and their payments to, to public officials. And now it appears that this was a line which may have been crossed with the the suggestion of a possible contempt of court. Yeah, I think this one's. Um, I think this is stretching things a bit. Uh, there's been a single complaint to the Attorney General uh, about this, uh, and the AG is looking into it apparently. 
Um, okay, fine. I think it would be an odd thing to do, I think, if the AG were to really sort of uh, criticise Suakers for this, not least because on the other side of the table, uh, Trevor Kavanagh, you know, I don't know, Tom Mockridge, the Chief Executive of News International, people in the Sun were sort of saying very strongly that uh, the son of journalists has been arrested for were giving relatively trivial matters, in effect, trying to plant another idea in a jury, perhaps, if there are eventual trials. Tom Mockridge is talking about journalistic sources being uh, threatened or maybe pressurised and expressing concern about that. And so the, this is why Sue Akers made her intervention, because there have been a whole lot of noise on the other side. Also, I think I think if we look at you know what's out there in terms of our knowledge about phone hacking. There's an incredible amount of detail. Yet the police investigation seems to be continuing, sort of unimpeded, with no complaints from the AG. You know, an incredible amount of you know, we know when Glenn Mulcair started work and finished work for the news of the world. We know that 800, I think 29 people were targeted and 44 MPs. So there's an awful lot of knowledge out there and information, and nobody seems to be sort of screaming contempt or or, or, or fair trial or, or, or anything like that uh, vis-a-vis phone hacking. So I, look, I, I find it hard to believe that this will be serious. It was another week when the police took uh, took centre stage uh, and the former Met Police Commissioner Sir Paul Stevenson said that the uh, explaining why well, there hadn't been further investigation of phone hacking back in 2006 so there had been, so there had been a closed mindset. Uh, in fact, this was 2009, I think he was talking about. He said there'd been a closed mindset based on the assumption that the original investigation had been successful. Uh, kind of more, uh, more more excuses there or more reasons why not more happened. Not terribly curious, Sir Paul. Uh, uh, one, one felt, um, and, and everything seemed to be sort of the right decision at the time and the right decision in retrospect. So he thought that it was the right decision in 2006 to not pursue the phone hacking investigation more, more more deeply. I think he was Deputy Commissioner at the time, or he understood why. He wasn't involved in that decision, but he seemed to understand why. He, he could see why there didn't seem to be any new evidence in 2009 as the police saw it and why John Yates kind of opened the book and closed it. Uh, I think within a day, actually said, look, there's no need for us to sort of, you know, no new evidence for us to review. But then he did think in 2011 that it was the right thing to reopen the Weeching investigation. There was a lot of new evidence, which, you know, well, well, there we go. Uh, 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 thanks for that. Uh, uh, and uh, uh, and he did say one other thing that was very interesting, that having done so, he did, he did say that he did sort of have the courage to stick to his guns between this important period between April and July, where the whole hacking scandal really blew. Uh, 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 and he'd been off sick, actually, when the um, uh, Wheating investigation started in January. So he comes back to his desk in April, and Kit Malthouse, who's the Tory, who's then, the, I think, the chair of the Metropolitan Police Authority, i.e. the governing body of the police... Uh, He's now Boris Johnson's deputy. Yeah, Yeah, that's right. I think he was even then. And and Malthouse putting under quite a bit of pressure, saying, do we need to spend so much time on this? Do we really need to sort of, you know, open this investigation uh, up so widely? And I think Stevenson was a... Uh, I think it was very interesting in the light of, you know, what the government wants to have more sort of uh, um, politicians involved in the policing process, elected commissioners, all this sort of stuff. I think it was very interesting that there was a real attempt at political pressure to kind of closed down the Wheating phone hacking inquiry at a crucial point and Stevenson resisted it. And last word on Levison, who's up next week? Uh, Dick Fedorcio uh, has got to be coming up soon, hasn't he? He is the Met's powerful uh, former head of public affairs, top top press officer. The man a lot of people say was kind of behind the let's stay as close as we can to the sound of the news of the world strategy. Uh, and we're expecting a whole lot of journalists to go uh, before Levison, crime reporters from a whole range of titles, um, possibly even Mike Sullivan of The Sun, who uh, was one of the Sun journalists arrested uh, only recently. So uh, 
we're expecting a whole lot of reporters whose day-to-day business it is to sort of deal with the cops and squeeze stories out of them. So that'll be quite interesting. Well, more on all things Leveson, of course, at mediaguardian.co.uk. Now, we're two issues into the sun on Sunday, although, strictly speaking, it's just a Sunday edition of the sun, but you know what we mean. Uh, Mark, how's it doing? Well, the sun's doing all right, if you believe Rupert Murdoch. He uh, was he said he would be happy if it was down around 15%. He tweeted this on a Saturday before the second edition came out. So he was trying to feather his bed for the fall that everyone knew was going to come in sales. It turns out it was probably down somewhere between 17 and 19%, which is somewhere around 600,000 copies. That means it was sold about 2.6 million, which is the same level as News of the World before he closed it last summer. Uh, I think they'd probably be pretty happy with that, but we'll see what happens next weekend. And have all the gains made by its rivals in the absence of the news of the world, have they all been entirely wiped out? Or, Well, you could do a bit of a brand health check here on the other Sunday rivals. I and mean, if you take the Daily Mail first, it's, a, it's tangentially a competitor. Um, when the news of the world went under last year, the Daily Mail did big price cuts, put on a few hundred thousand. Mail on Sunday. Yeah. Sorry, yeah, the yeah. Mail on Sunday. Um, and it ended up losing all of those. This time round, it stuck to its guns. It didn't drop its prices. And as a result, it's actually stayed pretty stable. It's pretty unscathed. They would have lost a lot of money last year, so they're probably quite pleased with that. Um, if you look at uh, Northern and Shell, if you look at uh, the Sunday Express and the Daily Star Sunday, um, Two stories here. The Sunday Express has kept its price the same. It's done pretty well. It's a little bit lower than what it was when News of the World, pre the News of the World closure, but it's kept its price the same, which is important. The Daily Star Sunday looks on paper to be a big winner. It's well up, a couple of hundred thousand up on where it was last year, but it's 50p nationally. It's half price. So they're taking, it's a bit of a perk victory. They're taking a big hit on uh, circulation revenues. So I'm guessing you're going to say it's not so good news for Trinity Mirror. Trinity Mirror is the most direct competitor with the Sunday Mirror and the people. They've suffered really big falls, about a third almost in sales in the first week and 10 double digits in the second week. Um, The Sunday Mirror embarked on price cuts and then backed off, um, as did the people. So Trinity's got its results next week. It'll be really interesting to see what they say about that. Dan, what have you made of the sun on Sunday? Because it's, uh, it's a strange piece, isn't it? Because Sunday papers, the, the pace and the feel of them is so different to a, to a daily paper. And yet this is an attempt to, to make a daily paper, you know, seven days. I think welcome, welcome to the future, really. Look, I think the reality was that, that Sunday papers traditionally, I mean, go back into, I don't know, even the 50s, existed on a sort of diet of sensation uh, uh, in an environment where there was just far less sort of competition for our attention. You know, uh, nothing, no shops open, not even pubs open much, and, and not much television around. And, you know, oh, and you great sort of, days. Yeah, and you fa- anyway, you fast, you know, fast forward into the modern era, and, and the problem was that I think in an incredibly competitive media landscape. Uh, and the, everyone's ability to put out break stories, you know, any second of any day. Uh, and I think it just became much, much harder for the Sundays to compete. And I think this is sort of the underlying dynamic that probably led to things like phone hacking, which is that you start to use more and more invasive, intrusive and illegal methods to to try and get that sort of sensational story that you couldn't get, uh, that you once could own in a different way, and now you're sort of finding it increasingly hard to get. And I think the reality is that once you sort of say, once you're clear that those methods are sort of, you know, no longer on the table, you've got to produce a different kind of product. And I think what you've seen is is that's the approach that's been taken with the Sun on Sunday, uh, the front of the book, you know, sports side, a much more sort of female facing product. Well, page three aside too. Uh, you know, you saw that in the Amanda Holden exclusive interview uh, on in the first edition. So well, I think we're going to see a lot more, you know, a lot more buy, a lot more celebrity buy ups. Uh, I think we'll see fewer kiss and tells. We'll clearly see more investigations over time. It, Rupert Murdoch launches things so fast, it just takes a long time to build up 
you know investigations like the cricket corruption. So I, I think we'll see that 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 coming through uh, gradually. Well, from print to TV now, and the launch of a brand new channel from Channel Four, something called Channel Four Seven. You can see what they've done there. Uh, it's Channel Four's first new launch for seven years. Mark. What's 4-7 all about? It's a little bit like catch-up TV. Uh, David Abraham has positioned it as somewhere between something like a, a four-on-demand or, or a sky-anytime kind of proposition um, and linear, regular, scheduled TV. The idea is it, it kind of fills the gap before we go to a, a whole sort of converged world. Um, they're, launched, they're looking to launch it in around June, July sort of area. It will be on the main platforms, your Skies and your Virgins and, and Freeset and Freeview. Um, and it will allow you just to catch up with, with some of the best shows if you, if you miss it. And maybe you haven't got it on the PVR, you, you'll get two or three bites of, of seeing it over the next week. So it's kind of best of Channel 4 from the previous seven days. It is, but it, not to be confused with a, a UK TV best of style. It's very current stuff. Um, and the idea behind this is they want advertisers. They want advertisers to back it. It's been... It's been taken quite well by agencies. They quite like it. No one's doing something like this. But the cynical would also say uh, they've got a terrible time with ratings. They haven't been doing great commercially. And this is one way, innovative, yes, but this is one way for them to try and increase their ad revenues. Dan, it feels a bit old-fashioned in a way, having a, a channel that's made up of, of best of from the previous seven days, when, when 4OD is already out there, where you can pick not just the best of, well, when you can choose what you want to watch from the last seven days and, and go much further back. I think not everybody finds these sort of catch-up services easy to use, whether it's sort of you know iPlayer or 4D or ITV player. Uh, and also you want to watch it on a big screen on your TV. So it's a bit dreary watching uh, television on a laptop, um, plugging in your laptop and the telly doesn't give you a great picture and it's a pain. Uh, if you've got a PlayStation 3 or an Xbox, you can do it that way, but not everybody does. So uh, you know, I, I think the big discovery that you know broadcasters have made is that that although repeats are kind of a bit of a dirty word when you talk about the BBC and the licence fee, I think the reality is that people aren't in at predictable times. They miss shows. They're desperate. They're keen to catch them. And I think people are just saying, let us offer you a repeats, not, you know, any number of ways. So we'll offer you through a linear, so in Channel Force case, yeah, we'll give you a linear channel with our best offer in the last week. And we'll give you 4OD if you want to watch that way. And we don't really care. We just sort of need to maximise eyeballs and impacts. And we need to, you know, give viewers every opportunity to catch shows they want to catch. Yeah, I think I can appreciate the difficulty of watching. Uh, uh, well, I don't. I just have a certain reluctance to watching uh, TV programs on on the laptop. Still, or maybe I'm very old fashioned. But I mean, I think I've seen one edition of Stuart Lee's Comedy Vehicle. That's been the sole experience of my uh, my my time in the iPlayer. What about you, chaps? Do you do a lot of um, catch up on the uh, on the iPads reclining in your uh, king size? No, I'm a PVR man. I, I agree with what Dan said. I think the idea of, of, of doing it on a laptop and whatnot, I mean, we write about it. It is clearly very popular, but I like the big screen, the sit back, um, ca catch it on PVR or whatnot. I think the channel's probably quite a good idea. In a, little, in a way, it really is sexy repeats, isn't it? It's kind of repeats repackaged and done in, in a sexier manner. Um, I think we shouldn't underestimate, though, they're having a tough time out there in the market. And the way that TV is traded is, is classic with airtime, you know, and eyeballs and, and commercial impacts. And, and this is being pitched as a way to boost their figures. Well, they could be onto a winner, uh, uh, an easy winner, possibly, but um, we shall see. I don't know if any celebrities are being paid to promote Channel 47 on Twitter. Probably not. But there's nothing to stop them doing so after a landmark ruling by the Advertising Standards Authority this week. Uh, Mark, this was all about Katie Price and Rio Ferdinand tweeting about Snickers. Can you, uh, can you tell us more, but possibly not too much more? 
Well, there were actually a couple more celebrities involved, but they weren't people like Ian Botham and Cher uh, Lloyd, and there might have been some others. But the ASA received uh, just a couple of complaints, and it was only about Rio Ferdinand and Katie Price's tweets. Uh, that was enough to prompt an investigation. What Snickers did was it paid them to send a series of tweets, five of them, um, but the first four, there was no clue or indication that it was a Snickers campaign, and they were slightly bizarre comments, comments you wouldn't associate with either. Um, Katie Price uh, tweeted about... Uh, check out China's GDP position or check out the Eurozone crisis. And Rio Ferdinand tweeted about, about getting home after practice and knit a cardigan. Uh, it wasn't until the fifth tweet where it says uh, the strap line, Snickers strap line was something along the lines of um, you don't feel like yourself or you don't always feel like yourself. Um, and the idea was there was a picture there, they were snacking on it and it had the, the at Snickers UK symbol and a hashtag spawn for sponsorship. Okay. So the ASA actually cleared it. Um, I think on one level it was it was quite clever. We haven't seen a, a lot of this sort of thing happening here in the UK yet, and this is the first the first sort of test of the rules. It was quite a clever campaign. It was well done. Um, uh, they decided the ASA decided that that was enough. That the the previous four tweets didn't sort of trick anyone majorly. It didn't mislead consumers into going and, and hoovering up Snickers bars without realizing it. And they said that's fine. Go and ahead. that hashtag spawn that was key was it to the. Uh well, to, was to let one, people know it was a sponsored tweet. It was, it was. I think the ASA required, um, I mean, there were a few people who said hashtag spawn, you know what, that's not enough. But you've only got 146 characters. But the, the final tweet also had at Snickers UK in it, and there was a picture with them chomping on a Snickers bar. I think the wider issue is they got away with a clean sheet, but perhaps the, the crime here was was their reputations. I mean, yeah, yeah, a exactly. little bit naff, uh, multi, multi-millionaires, you know, sort of bit of trickery on Twitter, uh, Twitter with their followers. Um, although I guess, you know, Katie Price should sell her eyelashes on eBay for money, wouldn't she? So. Yeah, yeah. well, I, I, I'm with you, I think, Dan. You know, it, it wouldn't make me buy a Snickers, but it might make me stop following any celebrity who, who did it, you know. I don't know if uh, Phil Collins I is going to do it soon. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think it's all harmless fun, isn't it? I think... It, but if everyone starts doing it, isn't it going to bung up Twitter and, uh, you know, well, put and us then all stop off following, Yeah, and then stop following the celebrity. I think, I think the point that... Um, I don't know. It, it doesn't look brilliant if you're a celebrity, I suppose. If you're sort of Rio Ferdinand, you, surely you're a bit classier than that. On the other hand, look, you know, brands want celebrities to promote their product. I think if if I saw anybody vaguely famous, you know, hashtag spawn or not, sort of saying how great Snickers or any product was, you know, uh, I'd work out within, you know, straight down the line, three seconds that they were trying to peddle me something. I think, I think there's a wider point, though, as well. Uh, when these sort of new technologies uh, cross over and, and, and the idea is to make a lot of money and commercialise them, um, you, you are going to run into these sorts of issues. Just recently, I think we saw Groupon, for example, rack up 50 plus um, uh, incidents with some resolved, some ruled against um, with the ASA, which has referred the whole sort of market of this bargain online deal making to the Office of Fair Trading. Prior to them, we had the behavioural advertising uh, um, in- incident, shall we say, with form. They got investigated, that market got investigated. So w- we'll see where we go. Uh, as you said, John, if there is a lot of this and it goes on and it's not as well handled and the ruling in the ASA showed that actually Mars and Snickers have put quite a lot of thought into into pulling this off that obviously thought about this potentially as a test case um, I guess it could be quite interesting if, if there's a lot of sort of abuse of it there's also an interesting point which is of course the money is going from the um, you know from the sponsor to the celebrities I presume Twitter's not getting a cut why would it uh, you know, and the challenge is Twitter's trying to commercialize its own platform uh, uh, it's got a lot of volume it's got a lot of people on it but but the you know but who's actually going to make the money and I you know, one increasingly thinks that it's actually the, it's the Rio Ferdinands that are going to you know, do better out of Twitter, actually, than uh, than Twitter itself. And Snickers not spending that money on uh, ITV or, or Channel 4, yeah? don't think it was. Surely it wasn't that expensive, was it? 
probably a week's wages for Rio Vernon. Mm-hmm. Maybe a day's wages. Mm-hmm. Then they just, probably quite a didn't, lot then. Didn't Snickers just, didn't they just replace uh, Mr. T with Joan Collins? Someone like that? Didn't yeah, well, they may well have done. I shall, <laughs> I shall look that up at mediaguardian.co.uk, uh, where you can find more on all these topics. Now, there's been much excitement at Disney with the launch of a new animated action comedy TV series, Randy Cunningham, Ninth Grade Ninja. No relation to Happy Days' Richie Cunningham, apparently, which it hopes will win the eyes and minds of boys of a certain age the world over. That's six to 14-year-olds, to be precise. We caught up with Disney's amiable programming boss, Mark Buhai, the podcast isn't long enough for his full job title, at a Broadcasting Press Guild lunch last week. First off, I asked him exactly what is Randy Cunningham, Ninth Grade Ninja. Randy Cunningham, Ninth Grade Ninja is an exciting project coming out from the Disney channels worldwide. Um, the creative team is based over in London, still working very closely with TV animation based in the US. Um, we're working with creators based at Titmouse Studio. It is what the name says on the tin. It's about a young boy, 14-year-old Randy, um, who's now got the obligation to save his school from the forces of evil. And uh, similar to some other sort of famous places over time, for example, uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, it's a a school, Norrisville High, that uh, seems to have a particularly high amount of evil forces every single day. And it's quite a departure for Disney, is that right, in terms of the audience you're aiming at? Yeah, this is one of a, a sort of new generation of shows for Disney XD, which is our still fairly new boys channel. So um, unlike some of the uh, live action Twin Girls series you'll see on Disney Channel, uh, this is aimed squarely at boys sort of 6 to 14. So it's, uh, it's whilst not a departure, it's one of a, a new generation of really exciting new shows. And Randy's not going to be the only one that you'll see across this year. Another show you've got coming is a reboot of Winnie the Pooh, but I'm guessing he won't be doing any uh, ninja kicks. Not yet. We're going to see how, how Winnie goes over the next couple of years. He's in ninja training, of course. I'm, I'm kidding on that. Uh, we've got a, a great series. Um, uh, Beth Gardner, my uh, colleague who works on, on preschool, working closely with Nancy Cantor uh, over in the US who runs uh, Disney Junior for the Globe. Um, they've been working on a, a new reading series called uh, Tales of Friendship, which is um, uh, harking back to the old uh, great Winnie the Pooh tales. Uh, And we have an exciting sort of primetime presenter for that, which we can't talk about today, but we will over over the coming weeks. Uh, But it's it's really nice to see a a, a UK production um, covering Winnie for the world and and have some nice new Winnie the Pooh content. And has Winnie kind of underperformed before, or has it just not reached through to a, has it not sort of hit a, a younger audience that you're trying to reach now? Yeah, no, it's not so much about underperforming. There's just a, an opportunity um, to work on some new content aimed squarely at a kids and family audience. So we're excited to have that opportunity to uh, add the next chapter in the, um, the sort of uh, famous story of Winnie. And another uh, classic brand, of course, is the Muppets, which made a big splash at the uh, the cinema. Yeah. Now that might come back to TV. Well, where do you think it might go next? I don't know exactly where it might go. I just know that there's a lot of interested parties in in, in working um, with the Muppets, including ourselves internally at Disney. Um, you know, we're talking about the the various options and opportunities. Um, maybe it'll come down to some arm wrestling or, or jelly wrestling as far as who gets the gig and what form it may come out in. Um, we're going to have to wait and see, but it was exciting that um, to see the uh, traction that the movie had. So I'm sure that we're going to see plenty more from the Muppets going forward. 
So it could be a primetime show like we used to see in the 70s and 80s, or it could be something entirely different. I would love to see something that I, that I used to watch uh, similar to that, uh, if, if only to sort of uh, give me that n nostalgic kickback. It'd be nice to see a, a primetime series. I hope that comes off. At the moment, I'm not too sure what's happening exactly on the Muppets, uh, albeit that, uh, that there's some movement and discussion. Okay, and just finally, you're in charge of UK production at Disney. Just give us a, give us a clue of what else you're involved in right now. Uh, we've, we've got quite a lot of uh, development projects going on with some um, local creative folk. Um, suffice to say that being genre and technique agnostic, we've got various forms of animation that we're looking at, everything from sort of uh, CG to, uh, to 2D to vinyl uh, puppetry um, to even stop motion, um, with some new folks as well as with some established studios. What we're doing at the moment is just trying to work on those and, uh, and make the pilots good enough where the production becomes a reality. Mark Buhai there, and I can only hope I pronounced his surname correctly. So I'm joined for this part of the show by Vicky Frost, who's The Guardian's TV and radio editor. Hi there, Vicky. Hello. We're looking at the uh, week ahead in TV and occasionally uh, the week just gone. Uh, but first up, it is ITV1's Titanic, which is uh, it's written by Julian Fellows of Downton Abbey fame. It's a period drama when period dramas are hugely popular and it's got a fantastic cast. So it can't fail, but I'm aware they said that about the Titanic, Titanic yeah. itself. Um, yes, I don't think it will fail, actually, because it is only four parts. And it is Julian Fellows uh, effectively writing Downton on sea, to be quite honest, apart from there's sort of another level of class with it. So we have our upper class uh, pa uh, passengers, our second class passengers, and then steerage. So he's sort of saying it's different from Downton because it involves a middle class. But uh, to me, there's very little uh, difference, difference at all, to be quite honest. Uh, is, and it, in, is it tricky for him? Because if it's too close to Downton, people will complain. But if he veers too far away from the winning formula, then people will complain. Well, uh, the reason I think people might complain, actually, is because it has a very odd structure to it. So, I mean, his reasoning, uh, it slightly makes sense, is that everyone knows what happens. So instead of building up to Titanic sinking... Uh, we begin. We start to see the ship sink at the end of each of the four episodes. Um, so it's a, it's a non-linear liner. Yes, exactly. Right. <laughs> you could say that. And I sort of think it's brilliant to do non-linear storytelling on television. We don't see that very often. It's quite adventurous. But the problem is that actually it's just a bit repetitive. You sort of see things from different people's points of view, but you've already seen them happen. And actually, I, I was sent it on disc to watch, and. Um, I actually thought they'd sent me the wrong disc when I watched the second episode because I kept thinking, well, I've already seen this bit. This is weird. Um, I don't know if it would be different if you're not watching both episodes back to back, but I can't imagine watching a third one as well. I think it doesn't quite come off, that storytelling. And uh, the dialogue is, is very much of... Uh, it's, it's much more second series Downton than the first series, right. if I might say that. There's a bit... Uh, there's quite a lot of, um, you know, shall we sail through the night... But there's an ice warning. Never mind about that. And, you know, it's a bit ridiculous, really. And I enjoyed that clip I saw, which was, uh, you know, nature will not sink the ship, but people will, or something along those lines. It's, it's, there's quite a lot about how, no, no, don't put on all the lifeboats. We want the ship to look nice. You know, there's a lot of lines like that. OK, well, um, i got to say, there's only one nautical-based disaster movie for me, which is uh, North Sea Hijack with Roger Moore and James Mason. Are you... Familiar with that, Vicky? Not really, I'm afraid. Okay. No. All right, right, well, moving on, moving on. From one Roger to another, uh, see what I've done here. We're going on to Roger and Val have just got in, which is um, 
sitcom on BBC Two, or comedy drama, I should say, on BBC Two, which comes to an end next week. Now, is there a programme in broadcast history? And I know this is a big question that's divided opinion, quite like Roger and Val. I don't think there are many, actually. I think people are very, very sort of polar opposites on this. Either you think it's the best thing ever, very subtle, very beautifully done, or you just think it's not funny. And you don't get it. Describe um, it for, for people who haven't seen it. So it's basically Roger and Val, that an ordinary middle-aged couple coming home from wherever they've been, work, the pub, a wedding. And we see them for the half hour they first when they first get in, just doing ordinary things that ordinary couples do, basically. Uh, lots of people say nothing happens, uh, but that's slightly the point. Um, I think it's absolutely genius. I think it's beautifully, beautifully written. It's very light. It's got this gorgeous touch just sort of small things like Val always going around and turning on all the lamps and there's just little moments that are absolutely perfect and um, it's Dawn French and Alfred Molina who are just gorgeous together I mean I don't think I've seen Dawn French be better than she is in this and she, she just proves herself as a straight actor that she's just fantastic and Alfred Molina also excellent and you really do believe in them as a couple which is just essential there's nobody else on screen nobody else ever comes into the house it's perfect i think it's perfect lots of people think it's rubbish (laughs) well i did try and watch one and i did go all the way through but it sort of had me itching all over i was i was desperate for something to happen or or for someone to knock on the door or uh, or for them to get out i don't know but you know maybe it's it's either too clever clever for me or, or it literally is too clever for me, and uh, you know, which is quite a depressing thought. But um, I mean, I wonder why. I mean, it hasn't really broken through in terms of audience, has it? No, fewer than a million viewers typically. No, it hasn't really. And I was very pleased to see it get recommissioned because I wondered whether it would be after the first series. The ending of the first series, by the way, is just the most astonishing half hour of TV. It's absolutely. It's just uh, fantastic. Really terribly upsetting and beautiful and dramatic. Um, it hasn't really broken through. I think, uh, to begin with, it was sort of sold as sort of Dawn French's new sitcom, and, you know, when it is anything but a sitcom, really. And they've sort of railed back to a kind of comedy drama. And to be honest, I think you could sell it as a drama with a few gags, to be quite honest with you. That's effectively what it is. It's also very stagey. Um, you could transplant this to stage very easily. And f- for me, I-, I quite like that, and I don't have any problem with that. But for other people, that doesn't really work. So there are a few episodes, I think, still on iPlayer, so look it up mm. and and uh, let us know. Well, uh, there seems to be less critical divide about uh, Channel 4's Homeland, which is slightly <laughs> slightly a bit of a gear change from Roger and Val. Just got in. Damien Lewis uh, just got another US show, they can call this. Um, <laughs> but uh, I'm a big uh, slight bromance with uh, Damien Lewis, if mm. he's listening. Come on. Uh, but uh, it's four reps in, and uh, it's a big hit. Well, I think it's doing very well for Channel 4. Um I like it. I don't love it. I think uh, it's come here on the back of a lot of US hype. And while it's really good drama, I think there are things about it I don't particularly like. I think sometimes it can be a wee bit clumsy, a wee bit cliched. Um, But actually, it's a really good bit of Sunday night drama. It's a nice thing to watch on a Sunday night before work, basically. You know, end of weekend, nice bookend, and and not period drama on a Sunday night, which is... It is quite a nice thing. Um, I saw the original pilot for uh, for Homeland, and I've got to be honest, some of my problem comes from the relationship between Damien Lewis's character and his wife. You, you know, he's meant to have been, spent eight years uh, presumed dead in Afghanistan. And, um, and then so 
this sort of reunion with his wife and the family and the way the family all works, that, that's sort of central to the drama and uh, is an interesting thing for a, for a big US drama like this to do. But for me, it doesn't quite work. She's a bit young. I don't really believe she's the mum of those kids. And actually, the original pilot had a slightly older actress playing um, playing his wife, and I thought it was a bit better for that. I slightly It jars slightly with me. OK, well, let me take you through a couple of comments on the uh, Homeland, uh, a very popular Homeland blog on the TV, Guardian mm. TV site. This is from uh, Andy Bullock, who said, uh, he said there were three things wrong with it, some of which I think are fair, some maybe not. Uh, first is having to watch it in 43-minute weekly chunks, which I'm not, for, you know, I'm not sure Channel 4 can do much about that. But um, Well, second, I don't, the, ad, the ads are terribly intrusive, really? actually. I don't watch it live. I record it because I can't bear to watch it with the ads. Okay, number two. And in the US, I think it ran without ads. Was it an HBO show? Is that right? It's a Showtime sh- okay. show. I'm not quite sure, actually. All right. Well, we'll let you know on the blog. Uh, number two, his criticism is that the chunks are topped with sex and tailed off with bogus cliffhangers. Have you got a problem with either the cliffhangers or the sex or the cliffhanging sex? <laughs> cliffhanging Which is a, certainly a show. I think that's on Channel 5. <laughs> that would be a Channel 5 show. There are an awful lot of boobs in this, and sometimes they are quite gratuitous, I think. Um, but the sex I don't have a problem with. In fact, I think it's done quite well. Um, it's done in that slightly awkward, can't really bear to watch it kind of right. way. I don't, you know, right. and, which is how it should be. I don't think that. it's kind of, yeah, yeah, you know, I don't think it's sort of there for titillation so much. And the third problem Andy Bullock had was the megaphone exposition, which is, uh, so he probably well, wouldn't be a fan of Titanic. Uh, uh, yeah, I, I think that is true, that it is a bit kind of exposition heavy like that. I mean, it's quite a complicated setup. Uh, so I kind of I think you have to maybe cut it some slack. It would be interesting to see where it goes sort of for the next couple of episodes. That is uh, Homeland, and uh, I haven't seen it yet. I've got it on the uh, got it on the planner. So uh, well, shall... all that said, I wouldn't miss an episode. Mm. You know, so you know, even I think it's that thing when you're watching really good drama, you can still be quite critical about it, but it's still you know a real must watch thing. And it's quite reassuring to get a hit US drama, especially on Channel 4, because maybe, uh, I mean, Flash 4 was on Channel 5, but there have been a f- more, feels like there have been more misses than hits in recent years, you know? Well, yeah, yeah, because Channel 4 had the event. I don't know if you watched that. It was absolutely ludicrous. non event. Yeah, it was absolutely awful. So, um, yes, I'm quite pleased. And it's nice to have something that hasn't gone straight to Sky Atlantic for people who don't have Sky Atlantic. Well, I watch US dramas downstairs my, while well, my wife watches television upstairs, which brings us to upstairs downstairs. And <laughs> stick with me. That's also not true. I made that bit up. I think it's, you're allowed to do that. It's the magic of the magic of podcasting. But upstairs, downstairs, I shall fill in while you compose yourself. Vicky. It's, um, I, I would think my perception has not been a, not been a huge hit on uh, on one. It's no, it's no, it's no, um, it's no Upton. It's no Downton. <laughs> uh, yes, it's no Downton. In fact, uh, I think its viewing figures are Downton. They is are. That, is that a joke of the? That'll do. Yeah, terrible. down to about five million. Yeah, I think, from six and a half for its opening episode. Um, I think it's it's a funny thing actually upstairs downstairs. I mean, I I I'm watch... like Roger and Val. Yeah, and carry on. <laughs> but um, uh, I watch it and I and I quite enjoy it actually. But it feels a bit like I'm not quite sure what it's trying to be. Whether it's trying to be uh, upstairs downstairs. Let's talk about the conflict between um, the house upstairs and the servants downstairs, and let's explore that relationship and talk about it more. Or whether actually it's just trying to give you sort of a potted history of 1939 and the run-up to war. And I kind of think it's trying to do both. And because it's trying to do so much, it does neither particularly well. Um, 
it, the plot points sort of there's so many plot points in every episode it's crazy you know and then suddenly we've sort of had this lesbian romance come out and where Downton would have taken perhaps far too long to discuss it you know uh you know it's just sort of slightly been rushed out and upstairs and then it's finished again and and then you know and at the same time we've had some storyline about sort of Nazi Germany and Oh, Everything but the kitchen sink. Uh, uh, you know, pretty much actually, and it's odd because you know Heidi Thomas, um, who the writer of Upstairs, is you know who also brought us Call the Midwife recently and Cranford. You know, is really the queen of Sunday night TV, but this feels not. It feels unbalanced and like it really needed a script editor or an executor sort of weighed in and say, "Whoa, let's just you know we're trying to do basically three series worth in three episodes here." Maybe it was the pressure of Downton sort of breathing down their necks, you know. Well, maybe, mm. and particularly because when, you know, and when Upstairs was, uh, I think, was planned before Downton was, so there was all that thing that Downton slightly stole, Upstairs, Downstairs, Thunder in any case. And then, you know, the first, when it first came back, that Christmas, it it wasn't particularly great, and this was meant to be better. And in some ways, I think it is. It's very glorious to look at. Some Some bits are very deftly scripted. But um, it also seems to be absolutely fixated on food and period detail to a very odd degree. Uh, Viv Groskop's very funny about this on our uh, series blog for Upstairs. But, you know, there's lots, there's too much detail. You don't need to know a whole menu. I mean, you know, it's just showing off, isn't it? Period drama doesn't get tougher than that. <laughs> well, uh, Vicky Frost, thank you very much. Thank you. You can leave your feedback on anything and indeed everything you've heard on the Media Talk blog or our Facebook wall. I'm John Plunkett, and Media Talk was produced by Jason Phipps. I'll be back next week. See you then. The Guardian has partnered with audible.co.uk to offer listeners a free audiobook when you sign up for a one-month, no-commitment trial of the Audible service. Audible has over 50,000 audiobook titles available to download. Go to guardian.co.uk slash audible for further details. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.